Hello and welcome to the Risk Experience Podcast. The year 2020 has been particularly difficult for the world with the outbreak of the coronavirus. Around the world, several policies have been implemented to combat the spread of the virus, most notably lockdowns or what has become known as the Great Lockdown. Countries have been placed on lockdown either partially, as in the case of the United States, or fully, as in the case of Italy and India. We are beginning to see gains in the fight against the spread of the virus, and some countries are even beginning to open their economies once again. Now, even as we appear to be doing well on the medical front, there are unintended consequences from the lockdown impacting the global economy. Economic activities have come to a near halt since the lockdown, and some small businesses have even collapsed. In this week's episode on the Risk Experience podcast, we discuss the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic. And joining me to do that is a distinguished professor of economics from the Carnegie Mellon University, Professor Stephen Yeldekin. Professor Yodekin's research focuses on macroeconomics, fiscal policy design, social insurance design, computational economics, and asset pricing implications of macro policy. She is also a senior associate dean of education at the Tepper School of Business at CMU, a senior editor of the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Economics and Finance, an advisory board member of the Carnegie NYU Rochester Conference Series on Public Policy, and an executive board member of the Society for Economic Measurement. She is also well-published with publications in top economic journals. Welcome to the Risk Experience Podcast, and thank you for joining us, Professor Yodekin. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's begin with the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on GDP growth, which is the next big topic besides the spread of the virus itself. And to do this, I'd like to draw a comparison with the Spanish flu, which occurred between 1918 and 1919. The Spanish flu was a much more severe pandemic and according to the CDC, an estimated 50 million people died worldwide. Economists are unable to measure the true impact of the Spanish flu on GDP growth due to the confounding effects from World War I. Now, following the Spanish flu was a brief period of economic recession. However, what seems surprising is the fact that following this brief period of economic recession was this long period of massive economic boom in the 1920s in what became known as the Roaring Twenties. During this period, we saw significant growth in industrial production, particularly automobile production, aviation, infrastructure, electricity and medicine. What do you think may have contributed to this sudden growth? Typically, what we see whenever there is a large decline in GDP or whenever we go into a downturn in an economy, as we're coming out of a downturn, we see an increase and an acceleration in productivity growth as we measure it. And that productivity growth comes from the fact that economic activity picks up, which is GDP, but labor, it's a little bit asymmetric. There's a lot of displacement of labor at the beginning of a recession, but then Hiring people back and engaging labor after a recession tends to be slower. So there's that asymmetry. So basically, you're looking at a ratio that is GDP on the top and labor in the denominator. And that number is going to look big during recovery periods because you are ramping up GDP, but not necessarily the amount of people employed and the number of hours working. There are some effects from recessions where we do tend to shed also relatively less productive enterprises and less productive tasks and jobs. So that tends to give a little bit of a boost. 
we tend to learn a little bit better about risk management, at least the risks that are posed at that time. So it does become a rather condensed and quick learning experience as to how to reorganize ourselves, how to mitigate against these kinds of risk. And that leads to some economic activity. And you have to remember also that any war that involves big, large destruction of capital, as it was during World War One and World War Two. The rebuilding of that physical infrastructure, whether it's at the you know government national level or whether it's at the business level, is again a big investment in capital that gives a big boost to GDP growth. What is different about this pandemic is that we don't have a destruction of capital. Right. This is not a war of the type that we've seen in World War One and World War Two. For all practical purposes, capital is just right now because of the lockdown is idle. It can be reignited and reactivated relatively quickly. Obviously, that doesn't mean that every single entity and enterprise that has been through this pandemic and through the lockdown is necessarily going to survive, especially the smaller businesses. So we need to do a lot smarter policy and a lot more targeted and quick kind of policy to make sure that we can continue to reactivate the economy when the lockdown ends and how to think about the layers of sort of recovery and layers of economic activity that we can unleash without reigniting the contagion process as well. And we have a lot more data, a lot more technology at our disposal right now than compared yeah. to the, the examples that you gave and a lot more experience in deploying policy. Uh, so I do hope that we can do this a lot better compared to yeah. those times. Exactly. Do you think there was any role for deferred consumption or deferred expenditure in the immense growth we saw in the 1920s? And that is it going to play a major role in the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic? Absolutely. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, we're seeing the unemployment claims just absolutely skyrocket. There's a lot of uncertainty about when the economy is going to reopen and how it's going to reopen. And will some of the businesses that employed people survive or not? And during times of huge current and near future uncertainty, people tend to cut their consumption, even if they have a little bit of income source coming in, because they certainly don't want to go on a consumption spree. So there's going to be, we already see, for example, in the United States, States, that right before the lockdown, the average household was spending about $50 per week. And that shut up to about $100 right before the lockdown. A lot of that is actually stockpiling activity. Yeah. And after that, during the lockdown, it came quickly down to $25 per household per week. So it went up by 100%. That was very short-lived and it is now half of what it was before the pandemic started. So how that will recover will depend both on sort of the resolution of uncertainty and risk with respect to economic activity, as well as, of course, what the total income effect is on households. Now, following the immense growth in the 1920s was the Great Depression. Would you say that growth in the 1920s masked certain fundamental economic weaknesses following the twin crisis of World War I and the Spanish flu, and that the Great Depression was bound to happen sooner or later? I think it's very difficult to have some sort of a very tight causality statement about that. I mean, the Great Depression, there's a tremendous amount of research done in economics understanding the Great Depression, understanding not just the causes of Great Depression, but understanding the recovery from the Great Depression. These causes and the reasons for actually the, the length of the Great Depression, you know, there are different avenues of thought. 
But a couple of things that are very, very different now is how policy did and can respond. For example, during the Great Depression, we were under the gold standard. So expanding liquidity by the Federal Reserve was very constrained. And with bank runs happening and people wanting to take their money out of the banking sector meant that the turnover in liquidity, which we call the money multiplier, actually shrank and there was a monetary contraction. That monetary contraction was very detrimental to the rest of the economy as well as the financial sector, and we had to go to a, basically a bank holiday. At right. the same time, there were a lot of labor frictions, and there were some new policies imposed about sort of labor, and that led to actually making things worse in terms of it was meant to control the amount of unemployment from reaching very, very large two digits. But it had the opposite effect because this led to large costs by firms who basically basically couldn't control the amount of labor or cost-cutting measures that they had. So put together, we had a very different policy structure. We had different information available to us during the Great Depression. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons since then. And I think we have a much more significantly more ability to be agile about certain policies. I personally don't think we're going to experience something like the Great Depression. We might see a very significant drop in economic activity because of the lockdown. But assuming that, you know, the lockdown doesn't last sort of quarters and quarters or protracted into well into sort of the, the fall, at least we will be able to layer some economic activity to come back and rework. I think we're going to not see the protracted sort of lengthy, you know, economic shutdown and detrimental economic activity as we've done during the Great Depression. So depressions are not just about what happens in a short period of time, but about sort of how long they last, right? Right, right. So the Great Depression itself lasted close to about 12 years, ending roughly around 1941, mm -hmm. having started in 1929. So that was a long period of depression the world experienced. And now we have the benefit of hindsight and we've learned a lot. Policymakers have learned a lot from the Great Depression. And I agree with you that we may not get to the proportions of the Great Depression and the current crisis we are seeing because of the benefit of learning from that experience. The IMF in its research has mentioned that global economic growth will likely decline by some 3% in 2020. However, it's going to rebound in 2021. It also mentions in its blog post that the recession in 2020 is going to be worse than the global financial crisis of 2007-2009. In your assessment, why would the recession in 2020 be worse than the Great Recession of 2007-2009? Well, first of all, the Great Recession, I mean, it wasn't, while we sort of think of it as a global recession, um, right. we didn't really lock down and stop economic activity across the world to this extent. And we certainly didn't do it for almost every industry as we are doing right now. Obviously, the financial right. sector was hit very significantly and the financial sector being the intermediary for other sectors, we're playing the market maker role, certainly has far-reaching consequences. Consequences, but it's you know it hit the housing sector 
in the financial sector. Right now, what we're seeing is a much larger impact with the exception of sort of essential industries, some manufacturing, obviously healthcare, we're seeing a much bigger and wider spread effect. So that's one difference between the two of them. And again, every crisis, we learn something new. We learn something about how to manage through the crisis. You know, one of the things that a lot of institutions, especially financial institutions, have done in the aftermath of the Great Recession is to obviously both because of the policies like Dodd-Frank and risk mitigation, they have certainly changed the portfolio of their holdings and they have certainly beefed up their positions in their capital requirements. So the other thing that you have to think about is that, you know, how was the state of the economy and state of these institutions different coming into this particular crisis as opposed to going into the Great Recession, right? Recessions and large economic shocks like this tend to also reveal a lot of sort of disparities as well as perhaps institutions where the cracks are (laughs) at the national level, global level, and as well as at the industry and at the firm level. I think the Great Recession revealed a lot of cracks in the system. We didn't patch all of them, certainly, but we became much more aware of them. And I think both at the large policy level and at the individual level, firms have taken a lot of that feedback and have used it to be much better prepared. So I think there are some fundamental differences between this shock and that shock. So I would expect that it might be more far-reaching and a bigger shock immediately, but then the recovery, if we handle it correctly, might be much faster and fuller. Right. So financial institutions are more resilient now than they were before and during the Great Recession. Certainly, that should help us, as you said, and this may likely give us some benefit in terms of the proportions of recession we are likely to see. The IMF published an infographic about GDP growth worldwide, and it segmented this into various regional blocks. And one of the infographics I'm looking at suggests that in 2021, the global economy is going to grow by 5.8%. And separating this into advanced economies and emerging markets and developing economies, it suggests advanced economies are going to see a 4.5% growth and emerging markets 6.6% growth. It also goes ahead to suggest that the euro area is going to be particularly hit with a minus 7.5% real GDP growth in 2020. Why is the euro area at this much risk of seeing a recession versus the rest of the world? Well, I mean, first of all, any of these extreme, what I would call, um, you know, point estimates of where we're going to be in 2020 or 2021, I would like to take with a giant amount of sort of skepticism. I think these point estimates, you know, they're fine. They're trying to give us some information about what we might expect. But honestly, at the moment, there's so much uncertainty about the death rates, the contagion rates, the ability of a vaccine, the ability to be able to open up the economies. A lot of our predictive exercises are dependent on models and on environments that we know something about, which is our historical experience. What we're watching right now and seeing right now is very different from a lot of our historical experience, this sort of worldwide productivity shock with a world that is much more integrated in its global uh, supply chain. So I, I think making these very specific sort of predictions is, you know, 
can be a bit useful in some ways, but also I think we should take it with a big grain of salt. But having said that, maybe at least sort of qualitatively, why we think that some areas would be more affected than others. I mean, if you look at the European area, the Euro area, it was also the same area that had a great deal of kind of uh, difficulty coming out of the Great Recession. They were hit by the Great Recession as well. So first of all, the fundamentals and the state of the economy going into this particular pandemic wasn't that strong. The UK economy was already starting to falter both due to a variety of things, but including also Brexit. Italy has really not seen much growth in the last decade and a half. Europe also has the demographics working against them. It is a relatively aged population, and especially this pandemic is having a disproportionate effect on aged populations. And at the same time, when you think about sort of these kinds of productivity shocks, these kinds of productivity shocks, on the one hand, if you have a strong social safety net, you don't see as big of a drop in current consumption because people still have some access to funds, as you would do in a lot of the, especially the Northern European countries, plus new policy has been enacted to compensate people for the lockdown, and more generously so than it has been in the United States. But at the same time, you know, the labor markets tend to be a lot more rigid in Europe compared to, for example, emerging markets and the United States. Um, Certain institutional structures are not as agile either. So, you know, taken together, we have have seen Europe at times being a little bit, and again, not all parts of Europe are the same, but the Euro area typically in aggregate being a little bit less resilient to these kinds of shocks for these reasons. So so it's not a big surprise given where they started from, where what they were right. experiencing before the pandemic started and the institutional structure, especially of their labor market and their financial market, that they might be hit more compared to some of the more agile and a little some of the more sort of, you know, fundamentally strong economies coming into the pandemic. Right. So in all these projections, one thing that stands out is that emerging markets in developing Asia seem to be the least impacted. First of all, the recession that is projected in 2020 is much lower for emerging markets in developing Asia. And going into 2021, they seem to have the largest projection of growth. Now, What we are seeing is that China is coming out of this crisis and it's in a much better shape than it was several weeks ago. Is timing an issue for these projections we see? Why does developing Asia seem to be doing well with these projections? Is it because they have a leg up in terms of recovering from the crisis so that they have enough time to grow their economy whilst the rest of the world are still grappling with the spread of the virus? I think there are a lot of factors, to be perfectly honest. And we also have to be careful about not taking the perhaps the Chinese experience and extrapolating to other countries. First of all, data with respect to a lot of emerging economies are not always very precise. Data collection is not as sort of extensive and reliable as countries in which these sort of institutions have been around for a long time and there are more checks and balances on them. So we have to, again, take some of that data that's coming in with a bit of a grain of salt. China is very different. China, by virtue of its both its political and its economic structure, can do things like, you know, lockdowns and monitoring and more effectively in a way than and some of the other emerging economies, right? Right. 
And at the same time, you know, China is a giant manufacturing powerhouse, and that manufacturing is still essential for most of the world, whether that's even being diverted towards, you know, personal protective equipment or not. Changing supply chains and changing that kind of activity takes time and takes resources. So they are going to continue to supply a lot of the world's manufacturing. And when you look at a place like China as well, you have to understand that with that tremendous economic growth that they have seen in the past, they have also technologically really have done an amazing amount of technological adaptation. So, you know, being able to work virtually, being able to move data around, being able to do deliveries, being able to tap themselves into a global supply chain, even when uh, things are disrupted, you know, they've done a tremendous amount of investment. So I wouldn't want to take the Chinese experience and then extrapolate to a lot of other countries. I mean, one country I think to watch very closely is India. India is coming into the pandemic a little bit late. It is very densely populated. It has less of the sort of the central control and structure compared to China. So we're going to see how things do fall out and in India. So if those emerging market numbers are purely or to a large extent driven with China, I would be loath to make big generalizations. Then you have countries like South Korea and Singapore and so on. I mean, those are relatively smaller countries with, again, having gone through something like SARS in the past, they are much more ready. They have seen what that had done to their economy. They had prepped for mitigation. They had prepped for these kinds of you know scenarios a lot better than especially the Western world has done. So it's a different type of game. So it's it's a combination of who are we really talking about? Are we just talking about sort of China and South Korea and bundling everybody else into one big emerging market um, analysis? Are we talking about countries that have had lived through pandemics like this and had their mitigation and resources already in place to fight it much more quickly and much more effectively? And we have to also think about sort of how much more integrated they are into the supply chain of the world, which still needs them. Right. So having talked about the real GDP growth, let's look at what is happening to the stock market. So from historical experience, what we have observed is that steep declines in the stock market almost always coincide with economic recessions. In the recent weeks, we saw that the Dow Jones plunged almost 3,000 points or 12.9%, and the S&P 500 plunged by about 12% as well. And this was a result of a huge sell-off on the stock market on March 16, 2020. These drops in the market are aching to the levels we saw in 2001. Again, the volatility index which is the VIX, also mm-hmm. spiked to about 85.47 on March 18th, 2020. And the closest we've seen to this number was on October 24th of 2008, when the VIX rose to 89.53. We have since seen an intermittent decline and rebound of the stock market. 
how concerned should we be in terms of the stock market reaching the levels of the Great Recession? I mean, it's hard to tell, right? We've never been good at predicting the stock market very well, and right. we're not going to start now, especially during this during this pandemic. Exactly. In the uncertain times, there's a tremendous amount of volatility, which is not surprising. The stock market doesn't like a lot of uncertainty, and that's what you're referring to with the VIX. Part of it has to do with sort of, I think, perhaps the handling of the pandemic, especially in the United States, uh, not very well. Certain regions and certain states have handled it better. But at the national scale, I don't think we had about two and a half to three months of heads up, given that we knew what was going on in China to a large extent. We knew that this kind of pandemic that is, you know, and this kind of sort of contagion that is airborne, that is very difficult to contain, um, you know, we should have been ready for even with sort of travel restrictions for this to reach the United States and especially the sort of the population density heavy kind of metropolitan areas starting in the West. So we had a, a tremendous amount of time actually that I would like to say that we squandered to a large extent to get ready for both financially, to get ready both in terms of a social safety net and as well as preparing the healthcare industry with all of the essentials that they need and with their capacity surge. So these were not done very well. And when policy flounders in the middle of uncertainty, it just simply makes uncertainty all the much worse. Now what we are seeing is a trickling in of information about being successful, at least in places like California and so on, being successful in containing the contagion and flattening the curve and having much lower death rates. And I think those are very good news. It means that both the policies that were fast and perhaps uh, more extensive and more severe lockdowns have helped. We do see that, you know, reactivation of the economy, if we can get ahead of it, ahead of the contagion and ahead of the pandemic can be rather swift. We've seen that in China, we've seen it in other places. I think it's very important. So instead of, I think, caging the question as should we expect sort of a bottoming out just as bad as we had seen in the past before, I think what we should turn our attention to is how can we address these uncertainties with smart policy decisive action and with information dissemination that tells us what exactly we're observing in places where smart policy and smart action has been deployed to reduce that uncertainty and to learn from it, learn from the impact of what we have done so that we don't bottom out, even forget about the 2008 uh, and nine recession, that we don't bottom out any further, that this is sort of right. you know uphill from here. I think that's where we should, instead of sort of passively worrying about where the stock market can and might hit. I think we have the tools to be proactive and we have the tools to certainly help make sure that that doesn't happen. And the Federal Reserve, again, and the fiscal policy and the monetary policy are standing by to try to help. This is not the time to worry about sort of how much liquidity future precedents set and perhaps some lopsided incentives that we're creating. We're just trying to kind of get the economy from, you know, stumbling further. And, and that's where we should concentrate our efforts. In terms of the labor market, total unemployment insurance claims have topped 22 million since March 14th, which is just about four weeks ago. 
Now, to put this in perspective, a total of 37 million unemployment insurance claims were made in the 18 months from 2007 to 2009 during the Great Recession. We are already four weeks into the lockdown and we have seen 22 million unemployment insurance claims. What sectors do you anticipate will see the largest unemployment rates and which ones are already seeing the largest unemployment rates in the economy? Right. So, you know, there's a lot of numbers floating around all the way from sort of 20% to 30% and so on and so forth. And I'm usually not in the business of making point estimate predictions. Right. I mean, it's very likely that for a short period of time, I mean, and you have to, uh, our audience has to understand that there's a very specific way that we measure unemployment, right? You have to be yeah. unemployed for Go about ahead. four weeks and actively searching, searching for a job. So it's not just the unemployment claim that we measure. We measure people who are not in that labor pool and actively searching. So for example, if you're a hairstylist right now, I mean, what could you possibly be searching for, right? I mean, you could certainly shift your efforts towards being a delivery driver and so on and so forth, but it's not very easily that your skills are going to be transferable to another job that's open a lot of things are closed down. So even though we see a large amount of sort of initial claims unemployment activity that are in the high millions, you know, that is not necessarily how we measure unemployment. So th- there's that one caveat. The second piece of this is that you have to understand how people are reacting to the incentives that we are putting in place. I mean, in addition to the lockdown, one of the first things that the CARES program did was to expand the unemployment insurance scheme, right? So So if you're a business where you're operating, even if you are allowed to operate and you're operating, uh, let's say that you you can do some retail through your website rather than being able to open your brick and mortar store, if that economic activity is extremely slow right now, both because of your supply chain and infrastructure, both because of, uh, you know, people worrying about their obviously income and cash flows and not shopping as much, you know, if that's really just trickling in and you're still trying to maintain a workforce and unemployment insurance has been expanded, you might be better off closing down the activity and allowing your workers to be able to apply for unemployment insurance. So we're also creating certain incentives, and and I'm not saying they are at all bad, quite the opposite. We do need to provide these safety nets that we are also encouraging, in a way, people to come up and apply for unemployment insurance. In the same way that if you announce that there's going to be a bunch of loans given out to small businesses, then we see a a huge surge in activity and application of small business loans. (laughs) You know, that is not terribly surprising. And, And is that the right, really, metric? to compare. I mean, clearly, a lot of people are hurting right now. A lot of people need these funds and we should provide these safety nets, absolutely. But does this mean prolonged or uh, unemployment and really a sort of a surge in unemployment that are in unprecedented numbers of like 25, 30, 35%? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, it really all depends on how quickly we can reactivate the economy. Do you see the tourism and hospitality industry recovering anytime soon? 
I think that's going to be one of the most difficult ones because no matter how much we get sort of the local economy going, I think travel restrictions, and even if there are no explicit or some of the explicit restrictions have been relaxed, there's both an income effect. You know, people will not be taking big vacations right now. They've just had right. an income hit. They've just had a wealth hit. They're trying to get their life back into order. They're trying to get their businesses back into order. And the other thing is that, you know, we have, at least in the United States, seen a tremendous, of course, by necessity, using technology, replacing a lot of this travel that we do. You know, do I really need to travel somewhere to attend a two-hour meeting and travel back to Pittsburgh? Well, it turns out that no, I can effectively <laughs> effectively do this on Zoom. And now uh, everybody's upgraded. And innovation, technological innovation in a variety of formats has really sprung into action and has accelerated. So I think travel, airline, you know, hospitality, those are, I think, going to be more severely affected and perhaps face both a longer transition in recovery and also some permanent permanent changes because of the way that now we reorganize ourselves, the way we deploy work, the way that we interact, the way that we use you know, technology to complement and substitute for some of the work that we do. I think they'll be hit for a long time. Right. So U.S. airlines agreed to accept the government stimulus package, which is partly a loan and partly a grant. How exactly can this stimulus package aid in reviving the airline and, say, the cruise industries? Yes, I think the stimulus package is not to necessarily get the airlines to do more trips or hospitality industry to be able to you know, open up more hotels. It's about being able to keep them solvent and being able to keep them in business by being able to pay for their overhead and any other sort of corporate, you know, functions and to make sure that these, especially with respect to airlines, with respect to transportation, which do have a very large overhead, that they can continue to be solvent so that when we open up the economy and when we have economic activity and travel resume, that they have not lost, we have not lost that very vital infrastructure. Right. Talking about small businesses as well, the stimulus package by the government was extended to these small businesses so they could also keep their businesses going, cover their overhead costs, and possibly keep their employees at work. The Federal Reserve, on the other hand, has also reduced interest rates, which is supposed to boost credit by the banks. Would you say small businesses at this time are in any better position to access bank financing, especially for those who were not able to do that? Well, I haven't had a chance to look at the exact amount, but what I do know is that a tremendous amount of small businesses have applied for these funds and the funds ran out quite right, quickly. Right. So they're all waiting for those who were not able to get the funding, we're all, are all waiting for a new injection of funds. So what we're hearing is that there's been an extension of credit and loans for small businesses. I think the reality on the ground can be very, very different. I right. think a lot of small businesses are continuing to suffer. A lot of them are, remember, they're doing this loan applications through their banks, 
And some banks are more adapted at this and more helpful at this than some of the others. And, you know, who can kind of go through the system more quickly to secure loans for the small businesses who are their customers versus ones that might be less experienced? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I haven't seen that data, but at least some of the anecdotal evidence that I am hearing is that it's not as extensive and as big and as accessible as it was hoped to be. Right. So that was my concern, whether small businesses will be in any better position or there will just be a consideration for them by way of making loan application requirements less restrictive versus how they were previously so that small businesses could access financing. And that would be something to look at that will ensure that these small businesses who employ a lot of their labor in the economy will not go under. And these stimulus packages being given by governments all around the world, what I see is that large proportions of these are going to be funded through debt, either by direct borrowing or bond issuances. And this will be particularly the case for developing countries. With the current market conditions and with so much uncertainty, they can only borrow at a premium such that they have to pay high interest rates on these loans. What is likely to happen is that sovereign debt levels are going to reach new heights in the near future. And with these unfavorable repayment terms, developing countries will be hardly hit in this regard. What do you anticipate will be the impact on future tax rates by these developing countries? Are they simply just going to tax their people more to pay these debts or they are going to approach it in a different direction? The best way to pay any debt, household debt, business debt, country debt, right. is to grow out of it. Meaning, if you invest in growth and if your income can grow, and your economic activity can grow, proportionally that debt and its service becomes smaller. If we look at any historical you know, episodes of how economies have been able to grow out of their massive debt, take the United States right after World War II, public debt in the United States was well over 100% uh, relative to GDP. And if right. you look at what happened, it's not because we ended up taxing people a lot. Most of that payment and the reduction in that debt came from very strong activity that followed in the 50s and part of the part of the 60s. If we look at also when debt was very, very low, public debt was very low in the second half of the second term of Clinton. Again, this is a you know time of great economic prosperity and we're able to. And the same thing is true for households. The same thing is true for businesses and the same thing is true for other nations across the world. So yes, of course, every time we add more to the debt, if growth is not going to be able to pick up and service that debt, then we have to think about sort of how we're going to extract some revenue. And usually that's through taxes to be able to service and pay back that debt. So Smart policy is also about in continuing to invest in growth no matter what the circumstances are and not take a very short-sighted view of what we do. 
So we need to continue to increase. And if the economies can recover and go back on a recovery path pretty quickly and bounce back pretty quickly and return relatively quickly to the fundamentals that we were experiencing before the pandemic hit, we should be able to support that debt and be able to pay back. Even after the Great Recession, a lot of the stimulus package, the TARP package, for example, that the United States had was paid not even on time was actually paid ahead of time right. by a lot of institutions and enterprises. So, you know, we have to we have to understand that what we should really concentrate on is the health of our nations in terms of this health crisis, continuing to invest in obviously surge capacity for healthcare so that we can address the contagion control the contagion, invest in developing a vaccine and treatment facilities, because once we have those, then we can go back to normal economic activity very quickly. Right. So this seems particularly true for developed countries. If you look at developing countries that have limited means of growing the economy, industrial production in a lot of cases is very low, such that the growth of the economy is always slow. So there's not much of a catch up at the speed that we would want growth to be. So usually what you find is that there's always talk about increasing the tax rate, which seems to be the first go-to area when they are trying to raise revenue. So it's of much concern to a lot of people that these stimulus packages being given out people are going to end up paying it back by themselves through their own revenues or their own incomes. And that will come by way of increased income taxes or sales taxes. So it's particularly a problem for developing countries and it's a genuine concern that everybody has. Absolutely. I mean, it's a genuine concern, I think, even across developed countries. When you look at somewhere like the United Kingdom, which is promising sort of 75% of wages for a period of time to its workers, I mean, where's that going to come from, right? It's not like they have some sort of a a fixed emergency funding stashed somewhere that they can tap into. Obviously, it's going to come from sort of a lot of um, increase in public debt. But again, the question is, you know, are we seeing governments now or soon investing in economic activity and economic principles and growth and being able to get us back on our feet quickly so that we can have a resurgence in economic activity and in income and in GDP that is going to be able to absorb that debt surface much better than having to resort to large taxes. Right now, I mean, who are we going to tax anyway? To be perfectly honest, a lot of the population isn't even earning income um, with 20 plus million people on applying for unemployment claims, they don't have an income to tax. Are we willing to tax those who are operational? Well, that would be a lot of the essential workers. Are we willing to tax the people who already have large amounts of wealth squared away? Well, in the United <laughs> States, that's always an incredibly difficult uh, political agenda, right? So right. so we have to we have to think about sort of, you know, I yes, absolutely. If I am a medium and a, and a lower income earner, I would be extremely concerned about how the government is going to pay for these extended, you know, bailouts and stimulus packages. So the thing to watch out for and the thing to encourage is who's investing and how are we investing in reversing the lockdown in a smart way. That doesn't mean fast way. And at the same time, continuing to invest in innovative and growth potential activities. 
Right. So the IMF also recently provided debt relief to some 25 member countries under the Catastrophe Containment and Relief Trust, CCRT. Do you think the IMF should extend this debt relief to other countries as well, um, as well as providing more loans to countries that need them? I think, you know, without looking into the details, um, what is IMF? First of all, IMF is not some entity that can print money either. So IMF's funds are also coming from its member countries, a lot of which are obviously the developed nations, which are facing their own sort of financial and economic crisis as we speak. So it's not a bottomless pit of money that they can tap into. So they have to be discerning, just like any other resource allocation problem. They need to be discerning about where and how they deploy it. And they need to also make sure that they're setting the right incentives in place. In other words, they don't want to do this sort of necessarily universally and without some strings attached. They want to make sure that the countries that are receiving these funds are also doing some smart economic fiscal and monetary kind of policy and, you know, interventions that are aligned with what they're trying to achieve. So the answer is yes, if we have resources, we should help as many people and as many countries as possible. But at the same time, we know that we do not have a bottomless pit of resources. There are also calls for China and other countries that are capable to also forgive debt owed to them by other countries. Are these calls for debt forgiveness justified? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're in a very unusual situation. I mean, whether they listen to it or not is a whole other issue and a whole other question, but but we are all interdependent. The resources don't flow just one way. You know, China is China because it has an amazing external market that it taps into, that it sells its products to. Right. Right. It goes and gets natural resources from a lot of other emerging economies, you know, and including, you know, including very highly Africa. So, you know, given that interdependence, I think allowing these countries that you depend upon either as markets or as resource, allowing them to fail or flounder is not going to serve you well in the short or in the long run. So can a renegotiation, a better Pareto improving outcome be reached given where we are pandemic wise and given the economic crisis? Sure. And that negotiation and should be done carefully, but with the interest of both parties in mind. Let's look at the role of e-commerce in this pandemic. What we are seeing is that A lot of countries are in lockdown and what particularly comes to mind is the role of e-commerce. What would you say is the benefit we are driving now from e-commerce? Is there a much more important role for e-commerce now? Absolutely. I mean, you know, with physically being unable to go and and shop and being able to do a lot of the sort of the purchasing and transactions that we would normally do, e-commerce has become incredibly important. I mean, what do you see when you look out your window? You see a lot of, you know, FedEx and Amazon uh, trucks doing a tremendous amount of delivery. Even small businesses, you know, are absolutely sort of reaching, trying to reach their customer base by providing some limited amount of e-commerce and they had to do that very quickly and very you know deliberately during this pandemic so absolutely i mean you know 
that's what the essence of e-commerce is, that when you don't have these physical and geographical um, you know, reach, then how can you actually deliver value and deliver goods and services to people? And I think this is also one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we are seeing a tremendous amount of uptake in e-commerce and the just digital service Providers. I mean, one quick example is telehealth, right? Right. Um, you know, we're seeing a huge uptick in telehealth mm-hmm. and a very quick and uh, accelerated switch to telehealth by a lot of healthcare service providers for those who are uh, were providing services that are not just for the COVID, but for, you know, regular services. And, and that's absolutely right. You know, when I think about, do I really need to book a dermatology appointment three months ahead of time, take half a day off of work and go wait in a waiting room and then see the provider for 15 seconds, only be told that <laughs> some cortisone on that rash? It turns out that no, I could just upload a picture from the comfort of my home and be have a have a cream called into the pharmacy in within 24 hours save right. everybody a tremendous amount of effort and tremendous amount of time and i think you know a lot of the adaptation of this technology that we have heard were slow because of the costs because of the basically rethinking their processes or getting around things like privacy regulation we seem to have done a lot of it very quickly and very effectively in a short period of time. So I'm more skeptical now of the sort of, you know, perhaps purported impediments to being able to do a lot of services and in a non-electronic form. It turns out that we can and we can do it right. pretty effectively and pretty quickly. And that's actually one of the silver linings of this pandemic. Right. So it seems to me that e-commerce is the only thing holding the economy together at this point in time. Without that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's right. So without that, um, the economy would have suffered much, much greater than we are seeing now. And this is particularly an important thing for developed countries that are capable of moving their trading activities and other businesses online. It's not the same case for developing countries, and that's why there's so much concern about the impact of this crisis on developing countries. And most developing countries are not really prepared for e-commerce or even working remotely. I teach a course called Emerging Markets to my students, to uh, master's students at Carnegie Mellon. And, you know, I study a lot of the emerging markets. And what you see is twofold. One of them is that if the if on average about, let's say, 35% of the tasks in the United States or jobs can be done remotely, which is still not a extremely high number, right? I mean, it's a sizable number, but not a extremely high number. It's probably about 10% or so in a lot of developing economies. I mean, why can I do this podcast? Why can I do this? The teaching that I do, the work that I do is because I have really good bandwidth. I have access to a stable internet. I have the basically the hardware access to hardware, such as a good computer, a good microphone, and so on and so forth, accessible to me. 
those are the kinds of overhead that's not going to be necessarily accessible to most households and most businesses and their employees in a lot of developing nations. E-commerce, on the other hand, there is a tremendous amount of development. I mean, if you go to a lot of the sort of the Southeast Asian countries and East Asian countries and, and, and a lot of the Middle Eastern countries, payment systems through your phone, being able to order things online and having it delivered, again, they're not using the broad band internet connections through their home, but they're using the 3, 4G network. Those are actually sometimes a lot more improved versions of what we see in the United States. So I think e-commerce in certain developing countries are even ahead of the time compared to a lot of developed countries, but the ability to transfer work digitally is not. That's a good distinction. So in terms of this, would you suggest that going forward, we have a wholesale transition or um, improvement, giving more focus to e-commerce and online technology so that should we face a similar pandemic, we will be much prepared for that? I think businesses are going to do that themselves. I think it's going to be part of their risk management. I think it's going to be part of how they get ready for these different productivity shocks. You know, we can certainly facilitate it by giving, you know, a lot of tax systems have investment activity, um, you know, as um, as a way into which get um, tax rebates or tax refunds or reduction in taxes. I think we can certainly encourage it, but we're going to see a lot of private and public businesses going down this route and really rethinking how they do business. Absolutely. So to conclude our discussion, what are some policy prescriptions you believe are needed to produce a more resilient economy in this period of the coronavirus pandemic? I think what we have um, yet not, I mean, first of all, in terms of policy, I mean, faster is better, right? Right. Why is it taking so long for these, you know, rebate checks and so on to arrive? That should be done faster. So we need a process or perhaps a infrastructure to to, to boost that up for sure, not to have it bogged down in, in various places for various reasons. The second thing is the expansion of the funds to be able to reduce some of the uncertainty and contingency planning. I mean, part of policy is also communication. Like any other business has to, the the business of government has to also communicate well what happens, what are the contingencies if the pandemic continues, what are the contingencies if the economy doesn't rebound, what are the contingencies if we see a resurgence of this, you know, infection. All of that should be part of the communication plan to reduce that uncertainty so that when the economy does tend to, you know, when the economy does open up and the recovery is unleashed, uh, people know exactly, you know, what to turn to and what to expect. And, you know, and smart policy means really taking into account both obviously resources, but also, you know, where do you have hit the biggest bang for the buck? You know, who are we trying to really protect from the adverse effects of this pandemic? What can we deploy to them? How fast can we deploy it to them? And, you know, where do the incentives? So if we're going to try to make sure that, for example, consumption activity doesn't drop significantly, well, then you have to give funds to people whose propensity to consume is higher. And that tends to be sort of lower income folks and smaller businesses, you know, giving people who already have uh, quite a big sort of uh, reserve, giving them a relatively small check compared to their net worth is not going to ignite economic activity. 
I mean, policy fundamentals, we've always known. They haven't changed just because we have a pandemic. We've always understood the incentives and disincentives caused by different types of policy and the sort of the uneven and disproportionate impact policies and pandemics or shocks can have on parts of the population and parts of the economic activity. Those fundamentals are still there. Those lessons are still relevant. They haven't changed. One question is how quickly can we approve and enact policy? Uh, and fiscal policy, you know, has to go through obviously Congress and Senate, and that's a more right. protracted thing compared to monetary policy. But monetary policy has its bounds and has its limitations, and it happens to be faster, but that's the trade-off. And at the same time, I think we really need to, you know, think beyond just how many uh, you know masks can i deliver and how many how many sort of protective equipment we can deliver which is paramount right now which is ex- absolutely the kind of the right fire to put out right now but we need to get beyond that and we need to really think about what will economic recovery look like not just how's the contagion spreading and how do i stop it and how do i flatten the curve i think that's where some of the work needs to be done All right, this is where we conclude this week's episode on the Risk Experience Podcast. Thank you very much, Professor Yodekin, for the insightful discussion. We appreciate sharing your time with us. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Subscribe to the Risk Experience Podcast, and thank you for listening.